Women making waves. You certainly do. What, do you just throw the food at these animals of yours, do you? Well, I did actually throw Murray's dinner just then. I just literally threw it in and he looked mm-hmm. at me and said, that was quick work. I didn't even have to sit down and wait because I usually make him wait. I make him wait to sit down very calmly and then I put the food in the bowl and mm. I was always trained to let them sit and then I say all right now it's time for your dinner you don't make them put on a, a bib or anything though do you no I don't make them put a bib on no I mean if I was trained to do that as mm-hmm. in if the dog trainer said to me do that I probably would have done actually because the dog what, trainer you told do me everything to. you're told by dog <laughs> trainers then. I do yes I do because I'm really really keen on getting it right I need to make my dog sociable he's a big dog Linda he's a very big dog and people mm-hmm. get frightened of big dogs don't they apparently yeah. so, so you, you took him out to dinner the other evening did you to a friend's house i how, did how yes, did that how did, did that go when they saw well this well, wolf coming towards them <laughs> <laughs> well actually in our friend's eyes murray was a wolf because she said that she'd been used to her son's two labradors coming to stay with her and that's why we were allowed to bring murray because i was very very frightened of uh, leaving him when we had bonfire night on the saturday Um, Because the previous night, he'd really got so upset by it, which is the first time. I mean, he's three years old, but he got very upset by it. Hmm. So I thought, I cannot leave him. He's my baby. I cannot leave him. So we brought Murray. And as soon as our friend opened the door, she was so shocked because Murray literally got up on his back legs. And it was literally about to cuddle her with his front paws. Anyway, I calmed Murray down. We walked (laughs) in, but he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He just stayed calm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did well. We did very well. Indeed. And what did he do throughout the evening? Was he sipping a glass of wine or uh, <laughs> was he just lounging around the floor? I left him to have his water and he glugged it down and he was a happy bunny. So I, I felt very proud of myself for all my training that I could bring my dog round to somebody's house that is not usually very au fait with dogs. Mm. And I did very well. I, I'm going to just pat myself on the back with that one, well, actually. The more I think yes, about well it, done. the more I did. So bonfire night for you, Linda. Is it, uh, is it a good one for you, or do you find that I didn't really notice. It? I didn't really notice it, to be quite honest. Mm. I did see some fireworks that were quite pretty across the field. I have no idea who was doing that. I do have friends mm. across the field, and I nearly texted them to say, is that you? Um, but <laughs> they probably wouldn't have noticed the next day and wondered what I was talking about. But I did wonder if it was them letting off the fireworks, which oh. then led me to thinking, why didn't you ask me along? Oh, but, Linda, you mean you're feeling a bit left out? Well, it's a bit, a bit left out. But I haven't said oh. that. A bit cold outside. To be yeah. honest, better sitting in front of the TV and watching that, in my opinion. Mm. But, but come on, uh, tell me though, you have a great story, don't you, about your dad and fireworks? Oh, my dad. Go on, tell us the, about that. The, yeah, oh, come on, yeah, that was yeah, very yeah, Yes, that was when I was really young and he used to always let off fireworks in the, in the garden. But unfortunately, one year, and I think he'd had a couple of beers, but uh, mm. one year a spark got into the box. He didn't bother closing the box or keeping the fireworks anywhere safe. No, no, he, he just kept them at his feet and just kind of leant down and then set, let off another firework. And of course, a spark got into the box, the open box, and the whole lot went off. But of course, when it, when they're in a box, they're going off in all directions, you know, vertically, horizontally, you know, the lot. So there was there was, it was like, a battlefield, to be quite honest. I'm not sure what he did because I ran in and hid under the kitchen table and refused to ever 
have fireworks again in the house, you know, next yeah, year. Yeah, quite he, scary. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. It was like loud bangs, lots of light explosions, but it was over quite quickly, but it didn't feel like it at the time. Mm. You know, the whole box went up in a wonner. So probably terribly, terribly dangerous, actually. Um, and we were probably quite lucky. We, we kind of lived in a very quiet place. We are probably quite l- lucky about that, or else if you, if you hadn't been in a quiet place, I think you'd probably have injured people. Yeah, that would have been very awful. true. Yeah, but... So did your dad ever get over that? Did he decide never again or did he well, ask? Well, he did say next year, shall I get some fireworks? <laughs> I don't think he sounded overly keen to my ears at the time. And I said, no. <laughs> and Enough. Eight-year-old, nine-year-old, no. No way. I don't want ever to be close to fireworks again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, we used to have them down the village green here. I don't think they do them at the moment, but uh, they used to have them down here. But, you know... They, it's still, even at an organised event, it can still get a bit hairy, you know. I mean, things, I showers can. of sparks coming down on you and things like that when it's windy. It was very mm. windy a few years ago and uh, there was sparks everywhere. So I'm not a big it's... fan. I'm not a big, I don't mm. really see the point well, no of the my. whole firework mm. thing. I mean, they're mm. very nice in the sky and everything, but enough. Just don't, just don't do it. Absolutely. So I think you and I are of the same view, aren't we? If we can put it out there that we'd like to ban fireworks, we would. (laughs) (laughs) If we were the Prime Minister, we would. Yes, we'd be complete spoiled sports. Yes, Yes, we would. We would be be a long list of things we'd be banning, but fireworks would be up there. (laughs) You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast. Brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. So we've got another couple of great women to talk to today, Susie. We have indeed. Yeah. We've got Jan Moore, who's going to be talking to Polly Ingham Watts, who's the general manager of Wimpole Estate. Have you ever been to Wimpole? I have. I have years I ago when the would. children, yeah. yes, when the children were very young, but I haven't been since and I feel ashamed I haven't because it is an amazing place. It is, isn't it? And it's very, very large. Can you imagine being in charge of all of that? Oh, gosh. It's bad enough just being in charge of a house, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It is. I'm really looking forward to actually to listening to that because I think it's a huge job and I think you would be quite dedicated to it, haven't you? And then there's Hannah Ross. We're also mm. talking to Hannah Ross. Yeah, Hannah Ross. Well, I read the book and it was an amazing book, Revolutions. It's about women literally riding bikes, literally doing something very different to what they would normally have done a hundred years ago. Mm. Couldn't or ride more, a bike. actually. Yeah. More yeah. like 130 years ago, in fact. That's it was right. the end of the 1800s, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So it makes it even more intriguing. Mm. So women that have cycled journeys across uh, Europe or East Asia and there's women who were told that they couldn't ride a bike they weren't allowed to ride a bike Mm -hmm. now if you think about that now it's extraordinary isn't it I know it really is but in those days it gave women freedom and and really it that wasn't a good thing to to parents to anyone else who were worried about things happening to them I suppose and even scientists didn't really agree doctors you know many of them didn't really agree that it was a good thing because you know maybe it was it was um, interfering 
with uh, with their womanly parts, and mm. yeah, they, they it was it was really looked down on by a lot of people actually. And I suppose you had to be quite it's a bit like women drivers at the same time, or, or just yes. after that, women yes. driving cars. You know, it was kind of looked on as very very odd and very quirky. But I guess you know it gave women freedom. It does give you freedom having a bike. Yeah, it does. I think. By going on a bike instead of walking, which obviously took you longer to get from A to B, cycling was a quicker way of getting where. And yeah, I just, it's a lovely book. And Hannah is fantastic. So yeah. I'm looking forward to talking to her. Yeah, indeed. Women Making Waves. Our guest today is author Hannah Ross. Hannah is a huge, huge fan of bikes and cycling. And given the choice, we think she would ultimately prefer pedalling on her bike on adventures, perhaps up mountains or just cycling with her local cycling group. Hannah also volunteers for a charity helping refugee women learn to ride bikes. Now, when not on her bike, Hannah works for an independent publisher in London and recently published her own book called Revolutions, how Women Change the World on Two Wheels. Now, the book explains in wonderful detail about women and their cycling journeys from the past to the present. Hi, Hannah. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Why is cycling so important to you? Gosh, that's quite a difficult question, actually, <laughs> um, because because it is. <laughs> so I suppose I don't really think about it. Um <laughs> I just love it. I'm I'm different types of cyclists. So I cycle around London. I cycle to work. I would say if I started my day by jumping on the tube, it would be a much inferior day to my usual day, which is when I cycle 25 minutes to the office, particularly if it's a nice day. But I'm also a cycle tourer I do lots of um what well, I did before I had a baby last year um I did lots of um and the pandemic I did lots of holidays on bicycles and cycling up as you said mountains and and all of that yeah occasionally I like cycling with a club and other people a social thing it's just absolute joy I don't know how else to describe it I sort of I love being in beautiful places and I feel like being on the bike is one of the best ways to see the world it just feels great I mean you ask anyone why they like cycling it's sort of the same kind of words always come up it's fun it's freeing it's pleasurable it's the best way to get from A to B a lot of the time it's um yeah it's all those things yeah. and I'm and I'm you know as I say in the book um quite passionate about what's happening with um our planet and, and the climate catastrophe that that we are in and I do believe that if more people cycled they would firstly enjoy it they would feel better and they'd be helping the planet. Mm, you've hit so many interesting points there. I mean, uh, the one thing that got me about your book very early on in the book was the, the idea of getting from A to B. It's so, so simplistic. And we get on a bike, don't we, to go from one place to another. But in your book, you talk about people and villagers and women who, in order to get the food, were able to find a bike the invention of the bike was phenomenal for for lots and lots of people it really was yeah um I mean obviously my book is 
specifically about how it changed women's lives and continues to but as an object the bicycle for for everyone was was completely revolutionary it really transformed the way people live their lives at that time you know this is pre cars most people wouldn't have been able to get trains places so yeah to have this this object which admittedly was quite expensive at the beginning but got cheaper and cheaper they would have been able to go to places that you know they might not have imagined that they would have ever got to before (laughs) not without a lot of walking certain uh sociologists cite the bicycle as putting rates of inbreeding if that's the right word um which was a bit more prevalent back in the 19th century they plummeted Mm. because people were able to go to other villages and towns and meet other people yeah mobility yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and and of course not everybody was very keen on women cycling and you explain that rather well in your book as well for lots of reasons it was kind of frowned on by a lot of people wasn't it yeah i mean we sort of have to think about what women's lives were like at at this time so we're talking sort of 1880s um early 1890s when the, when the bicycle first emerged and started becoming popular the bicycle as, as we would know it today and you know women at this time they weren't they would sort of generally discourage from further education although some women obviously did go to university at this time they were discouraged from getting jobs unless they financially had to women's lives tended to be around the home and, and sort of staying indoors, their clothing, if you think about their clothing, they wore long skirts, pet, huge layers of petticoats, corsets, tight, tight corsets. It was about containing them, yeah. keeping them in. Yeah, <laughs> in, in yeah one, exactly. In a, in a sort of, in a, in a kind of static spot, yeah. ideally, where they could be seen and watched and they couldn't get up to things that, they weren't supposed to or allowed to um, <laughs> according to the conventions of the time which were incredibly restrictive and patriarchal yes the bicycle was was the opposite of all that it was you know as i said before it's about freedom and independence mm. and powering yourself getting yourself places people weren't used to women doing that they certainly weren't used to sort of women using their bodies openly <laughs> in a physical way. Why write this book at this present time? Is this something that you were frustrated that you hadn't seen a history book like it? What had prompted you to do this book? I Someone asked me this the other day, actually. And, well, they asked me um, about whether I'd seen Maxine Peake's play about Beryl Burton, the British cyclist, um, professional cyclist from the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was actually seeing her play that I think made me think that there are so many stories of women who've who've kind of struggled against adversity in cycling. And it goes right back to the beginnings of cycling, but it, that story tends to be rather overlooked, shall we say? They tend to focus more on the professional sport, and the professional sport has generally done as much as possible to exclude women. <laughs> um, so it tends to be a story of men women winning medals and doing races and 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 great kind of feats of athleticism and grueling adversity Um, and sort of in in histories of cycling the sort of the women's side tends to be a sort of chapter or a side note and I just wanted I felt you know there was no other book that was trying to sort of tell the story of all different types of women cyclists from the beginnings to 
to now, mm. which actually was quite ambitious, <laughs> as it turned out. Um, so maybe that was a reason why that the book didn't exist previously. But yeah, I just wanted to try and put women's stories at the centre of cycling because they had been there from the very beginning. Was it a book that you found easy to have published? Did you have to send it to lots of publishers in order uh, in order to get it published? Well, I, ha- I have an agent, so they handled that that side of it. There was interest in it um, from from a from a few different places, mm-hmm. um, but I think perhaps there is a slight resistance from some areas that women don't buy books about cycling. <laughs> do, you, do you honestly do you still get do you think you still get that little challenge do you I'm, I'm really upset about that but obviously I can believe it but you really feel that that some people still think like that that women aren't interested in cycling yeah I do, oh, wow. I do. oh my gosh yeah That's yeah amazing. I mean or, or or not interested enough obviously you've done so much research and it, you can tell it's in the book you can't name all of it but what comes out at you from the book that you thought wow that's the reason why I wrote this book because I didn't know about this gosh there are so many things actually it's quite hard to identify just a few of them but um I do talk in the book about how my great-grandfather was a not professional but he was a a competitive cyclist in 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 the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s and he raced at Hernhill Velodrome Um, And I had wanted, part of the book is I wanted to find out whether there were women who were racing at that time, at that velodrome or or similar, because I, I, just a sort of superficial look, I couldn't find anything, but actually there were, and actually women's professional cycling, it was, or women's cycling was the first, one of the first women's professional sports, um, which is really fascinating again, because of that whole, you know, the whole sort of aspect of of women being kind of pushed out of the professional sport um for so long you know the fact that there was no women's cycling at the olympics until 1984 and yet men have been competing in cycling events at the olympics for nearly 100 years since (laughs) by that point (laughs) but they were there from the very beginning there were women racing on even on penny farthings and many of these women were quite famous as well at their time they'd do big interviews there was a woman called Lisette in France who was a kind of real phenomenon used to do all the velodromes and set hour records and she ended up going to the states and doing kind of tours of racing against groups of American women Um, so I found all that really really interesting um, and just had no idea that there had been this this story at all. Mm. You know what would be really interesting to find out, Hannah, what your grandfather thought, what he made of the women cycling as well. I wonder whether he was supportive of the idea. Perhaps it's something you'll never know. Yeah, it's a great grandfather, but yeah, I yes, definitely, we'll never know. Um, and there was a mixed feeling, I think, at the time about about them whether they were a spectacle that people went to see them because yeah a gimmick yeah yeah, it was a gimmick it was it was you know women wearing not many clothes according to kind of victorian standards and and racing around a track um which would have been obviously quite a novel thing (laughs) or and or whether they they really were taking it seriously i think the truth is a bit of both 
It's interesting how the Tour de France, which is the world's biggest annual sporting event where nearly 200 men cyclists race over 2,000 miles in about, I think, 23 days. And basically, it's a huge race around France. What about the women's race? This is this actually quite a complicated story, this one. But um, I do talk about Tour de France a lot in the book. But because I think for what it represents, it's for most people, most people don't follow professional cycling even if they're quite interested in cycling but but the race that they'd know is the Tour de France because it is the biggest race on the calendar Mm. um it gets the most media attention um and it's three weeks of men you know racing around France and there are no women they attempted it and throughout the 80s there was sort of it it existed in a few different incarnations and and got shorter and shorter and less and less money um as people lost interest in it in it And, and then from 2014 onwards, um, the women just had something called La Course, which was really just a couple of hours of racing on one day. I mean, it was obviously great that they had that as opposed to nothing, but it's still <laughs> men get three weeks, <laughs> women get a few hours. Um, it looks, yeah, sort of... Um, but yeah, it was announced last week that they, the Tour de France from next year... Well, they will have their inaugural um, Women's Tour de France, which is oh, great. 10 stages, I think. So that's a big step forward. I'm really interested in this, the charity that you volunteer for helping refugee women. To, yes. Yeah, tell us about yes, that. Yes, I'm interested yeah, in that. Yeah, that's something yeah. that I hadn't thought of or hadn't heard about. So it's good to be able to hear it now. Yeah, this is a charity in London and it's a charity that gives bikes to refugees and it also trains refugees as bike mechanics which is amazing um, but they also have a part of of the organization is about uh, teaching women asylum seekers and refugees to ride bicycles women who perhaps in their own country culturally it wasn't an accepted thing to do or they you know their family didn't have the money so they just never learned to ride bikes so these are adult women um wanting to to ride bicycles which is amazing and at the end of the course they get given a bicycle which again as we've said you know gives them a enormous amount of independence and um, freedom and also pleasure it was great I mean I'm not a qualified uh, cycle trainer although perhaps one day so I was sort of just just assisting the the actual cycle trainers and it was just yeah such a wonderfully lovely and positive thing to be um, a part of I can imagine Um, yeah yeah and just just seeing you know, it's really tricky learning to ride a bicycle from scratch as an adult. Mm, yes. um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, sort of, you know, I sort of wonder, gosh, could I even do this? I wonder how surprised yeah. they were at the beginning to be offered to have tuition and how to ride a bike. That must yeah. have been quite a sort of novel or definitely new for them. So that in a sense, that's it's extraordinary in itself, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And for you know, from a practical point of view, that's sort of getting to A to B. The you know, the money that asylum seekers have to live off is very, very small. And so to not have to use your money on on paying for expensive public transport is really Huge. powerful. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, but then there's all the psychological benefits as well of riding a bike, which anyone who does so knows intimately, um, that yeah, it just makes you feel it makes you feel happy. I mean, that is something I was going to ask you about, because living in and around the Cambridge area, 
it's actually quite a nice area for cyclists because it's very cycle centric. You know, just about everybody in Cambridge has a bicycle and there's lots of cycle lanes. It does. Um, (laughs) And if they don't have a normal, I would refer to as a normal bicycle, they've got one, you know, with um with with kids um attached yeah, to it and, and you, and, yes yeah. cargo bikes and all I mean every you know there's tandems there's there's mm-hmm. cycle I I passed someone in the morning a site a bike built for three wow. you know I mean all kinds yeah. of things going on which is amazing yeah. in others in other cities are not quite so lucky though in having so many no. cycle lanes so it can be quite a dangerous thing as well I guess I mean yes it can be I mean I try not to dwell on that aspect of it I certainly don't know my book I mean I do (laughs) I do talk about um the importance of of infrastructure and the reason that why in this country in particular still only a third of cyclists are women and that really is largely down to the fact that women just don't feel safe to ride bikes in this country yeah um it's just too dangerous i mean london is a lot where i live is a lot lot better now oh, than, that's good to hear than, certainly good. when i started cycling but yeah. i end the book actually in cambridge i start the book in cambridge right, in 1897 indeed. and i end it um now contemporary cambridge because you have a gender, an equal gender split of, of cyclists in, in Cambridge, which I think is yeah. fairly unique to the rest of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're it's, nobody it's... without a bike in Cambridge. <laughs> um, I mean, that's just, that's, that's just wonderful. Kids from a young age, it's, yeah. it's almost kind of just part of the culture, you know. Exactly. You're in a cargo bike as a young child and then you go onto your own very small bike, perhaps attached to the back of your mum or dad's bike. And then you have your own bikes and you're, it just is part of the culture here, really. Exactly, yeah. yeah. No, that's it's just fantastic. I saw this video the other day shared by Chris Boardman on um, Twitter of a, a sort of huge trail of of children cyclists in Barcelona where they just they stop all the traffic for them all to go through it was hundreds of children school children it's just (laughs) so so they can get to school and it's just yeah we need more more things like that please we do we do do. your book and yourself I can tell from what you're saying reading between the lines here that there's more to come for you is that one of your missions now is to try and push lots of people to to cycle more and Cambridge, as Linda said, it's it's where it all happens. It's Cycle City. But there are so many other cities all over the UK that wouldn't dream of stopping for children on a bike, on bikes to I get know. to school. And, it, and I, I always thought it was uh, the, 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 the rule of law on a road is pedestrians first, then cyclists, then drivers. But somehow the drivers seem to have the prevalence, don't they? Yes, they do. And it's such a culture shock if you go to, I don't know if you've ever cycled in somewhere like the Netherlands and the cars give way to you mm-hmm. and I that's right I kept stopping for them <laughs> and but they'd stop for me and it's just yeah it should that that's how it should be but there's some amazing people out there doing incredible stuff I mean I'm really excited to see a lot of cities now they've appointed cycle mayors who are trying to push through for the infrastructure that's that's desperately needed yeah. Um, and there's a lot of there's a, there's lots of pushback and it's really depressing and I I do sometimes feel um, just really quite down about yeah, it. I'm but it is nice that a lot of cities are taking it seriously and giving them a voice. You know, giving cyclists a voice. Yes. Up, up, up yes. at the top. 
you know, so they're listened to. Yes. And decisions can be reviewed with a view to cycling as well when they're making changes. And I, I don't know if you know, we have, a, we have Dutch Roundabout in um, yeah. in Cambridge. Have you seen that one? It does cause a bit of a problem, though. Yeah. A lot of people don't know how to use it. Do you find that lots of your family and friends are cyclists? Are you are you keen to urge them to do a bit more cycling? How The people that you mix with, I always think that you sometimes mix with people that are fellow cyclists and you you meet them for a coffee because you can cycle. Is that, is that sort of something that happens to you? Do you have more friends cycling than you ever done before? Yeah, I have. I mean, lot, lots of most of my family cycle. Um, but yes, I do have a lot of friends who cycle as well. I mean, it's all the sensible people in London cycle (laughs) it really is the best way to get around Um, and I did and and some of my friends who hadn't cycled before in London you know I think they they were you know they would say they just didn't feel that safe cycling um they picked it up in the pandemic and some of them have carried on which is which has been great actually considering the roads are crazy again. They're really, really busy. Have you any oh. plans? What's next? <laughs> <laughs> I actually do want to, to qualify as a cycle trainer so that I can actually practically help people to learn to ride um, yeah. as well. And just because I'm just so passionate about children, like you say, growing up in the culture where you ride a bike and that's how you get to school, that's how mm-hmm. you go see your friends just getting more people onto bikes you know this was you know the book obviously is about women but it's just it's about everyone really and just making it a diverse and inclusive place but yeah just more more cycling more cycling yeah excellent more people cycling you've inspired me to get back on my bike i've got about two bikes one is my yes my, you have you've yeah. a fold-up bike haven't you I have Susie? A fold up, actually that's three then Linda, isn't it yes that's <laughs> oh you got the, you'd forgotten about the fold-up <laughs> bike so small bike. you can't see it oh, has the fold-up been bike. getting much much use though since the pandemic no I, I well I, I love cycling and I I spend a lot of time I don't know if you know uh, the sark in the channel islands there are no cars yeah. and so we cycle oh, everywhere lovely. it is lovely yeah. you would love it hannah you yeah, I would. would. <laughs> yes cyclist haven yeah. <laughs> so we, us as a family we cycle when my children were very very little we uh, i bought from the car boot seller a little bike a second-hand child's bike and i put them all on it on the grass and so they yeah. could all fall off it oh. and get back on again and <laughs> there would be tears but there would be grass tears so it'd be soft yeah and that's how i got them to ride basically i was determined everybody <laughs> wanted to teach them to play tennis or play the piano yeah. or maybe good at maths i thought get on that bike because that's it yeah that's you that's you know freedom for you yeah it is. and that's susie all over harsh but fair <laughs> and harsh but fair <laughs> Yeah, it is true. Yeah, yeah. Are they still cycling? Um, you mean, do they still like me or do they still like <laughs> They still walk. Never mind cycle. Yeah, they still cycle. In fact, my son cycled all the way through university. Um, he stupidly t- was so proud of his road bike that he left it outside Bristol Station to go to do some work. Oh, and Bristol came- Station. Yeah, and it mm. was not there when he got there. It was just notorious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, my sister-in-law's had a bike stolen from there not that long ago. Um, ah. Yeah, yeah but it's very cycling is very popular in Bristol, but also is. so is yes. Bike yes. <laughs> you learn the hard oh, way. Dear. But we do. We all love cycling, and I love to see and talk to people about 
getting on a bike and I, I'd like to see more councils really making it a priority so when they're putting in planning not so much for Cambridge because I think Cambridge have it they I think there's yeah, more to it do. but there are other cities that more need for, for the rest of us please yes exactly that when the planning <laughs> comes up from new building that they think yeah. what needs going in first of course a cycle lane yeah that this idea of you build everything around a car is you know oh. that's got to go um so yeah good cycle infrastructure I've heard people speaking about some cycle paths off, which are to the side of the road. You know, they're actually off the road, but the surface is so poor and oh, slippy yeah. in certain conditions. You're safer on the road with with yeah. no cycle lane than you are on the yes. cycle path. And then you get shouted at by the drivers who say, "Yeah, you don't understand." Yes. Yeah. Anna, thank mm-hmm. you so much for oh, your time. Yeah, it's been thank great. You so thank much you. For having me. Thank you. Oh, it's been really lovely talking to you. I guess that's all we've got time for on this edition of Women Making Weave, Susie. We'd like to thank our guests, Polly Ingham-Watts and Hannah Ross, as well as our contributor, Jan Moore, and her engineer, Tony Sawford. Now, we're always on the lookout for women who are doing interesting things. And if you know of a woman who you think we should be talking to, please do get in touch. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.